0: You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. My guest today is Ursula Burns. Ten years ago, she made history twice. The first black woman CEO of a major American corporation and the first time one woman succeeded another to lead a company of this size. She joined Xerox as an engineering intern in 1980 and rose through the ranks, helping to pull a company known for its photocopiers back into the black and firmly into the digital age. But in the decades since she rose to business prominence, progress has been patchy. Although women now hold nearly half of entry-level jobs in America, they run only 33 of the country's 500 biggest companies. So this week we're asking, who will run tomorrow's top companies? Ursula Burns, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Happy to be here. Let's start with your current role as CEO and chairman of Vion. You took over in 2017 as the company was reinventing itself as an online services company. So what are the big opportunities you see that brought you here as opposed to somewhere else for your next steps?
1: The countries was the was the biggest and the highest interest. The company operates in countries that don't don't have high penetration in some of the services that we take for granted in the Western world. So, you know In every, layman speak access to continuous, inexpensive, ubiquitous cell phone service, for example. Online services as simple as streaming videos, um, doing financial transactions, um, getting information about health or education or in Uzbekistan or in Kajikistan or Kazakhstan, Pakistan. These countries are, are one step behind with growing populations and growing needs. And so this company can actually help them meet those needs.
0: You've talked about the challenge of solving global systems problems. And that's really what the, the day job is. But one of the themes that we've been following at The Economist this year is one we've called globalisation, just a, a slowing down of of trade and more kind of sand in the wheels, more insularity in our politics, increasing regionalization in trade and finance. How do you see that?
1: It's definitely there. I don't know what the data shows and I actually don't care <laughs> at this point, because I see it and feel it. You hear it every day. And even if it's not policy-wise changed yet, it has definitely changed the psyche. So what citizens are thinking more and more about business is it must be regional, it must be local, as local as possible. The value of local is huge. It is so big, this is the thought process today, that I will defend that local against any kind of globalization. And so there's a big move against trade, And governments are actually echoing what they're hearing from the people. People are echoing what they hear from governments. So it's a virtuous, non-virtuous circle. I will say on the flip side as well that one of the reasons why people are reacting the way that they're reacting is because we've made some fundamental mistakes at the governance level of companies, at the governance level of governments. We have, in many ways, ignored the need for understanding and pace and allowing information, privacy problems, health problems, pollution problems. We, we've not actually slowed down enough to understand what the concerns of individuals are and to try to move them along. And it's an interesting problem. I used to be a push it, push it, push it, go as fast as you can. And I think that's not appropriate. We are at a point where we can do more with technology than we know how to govern. So what
0: have you changed your mind about? I was really struck that you said, I used to be a push and push person. Well, I, I was
1: a technology will solve the problem. I actually, have now understand very, very clearly that technology is governed by humans, right? And it will go as long and as wild and as crazy as humans allow it. Part of what we're seeing is we have a set of rules or practices that does not include the concerns of many people. They were designed by a small number. These small numbers look a lot alike, generally white males. It's not an inclusive environment that can take into account the effect on other people or how other people would see it.
0: I'm going to come back to that uh, and your advocacy for uh, social change as well as changing the business world in just a moment. But if I could just dig into your own experience a bit, particularly your time at Xerox, when you reinvented a company that was really designed for a world of paper and printing, and you brought it into the digital age, what was the hardest part of that? Is it just that our associations with certain companies? To be honest, I think Xerox, I still see a photocopier in my mind. I'm still thinking paper. You probably want to shoot me. There are two big mountains to
1: climb. Some of them are external perception, Xerox. Um, People use Xerox as a synonym for photocopying. No matter what the heck we did, we were going to be in this world. So, you know, we had to figure out a way to deal with the fact, and we did, we were not willing to change the name of the company, right? So that's one. But then there are a whole bunch of internal issues as well. The internal issues are just as we understand that there is an association externally, there is also a comfort level in association internally. So when you talk to employees who have been there for a very long time, they think of themselves as a copying company. And as that market became less and less relevant, less and less needed, less and less valuable, you had to add additional skills. Literally, we had as much fight inside to actually invest money in the new businesses, as people had a difficulty in understanding why we would ever do that on the outside, because aren't you the copying company? So the internal and external um, hurdles, and they're all around history being your biggest success, but also your biggest enemy to change.
0: So what would you say the next comparable revolution would be that companies or to be preparing for, is it AI, is it machine learning, the transition to the cloud for digitally based companies? Yeah, I think that
1: it's all around um, anything that has to do with the compilation and use of data. So it's all around AI and machine learning. We're going to go through a transition where the need for workers to do the types of work that were valued before is going to drop exponentially and quickly, and I'll give you an example. Self-driving cars, one of the jobs that people, particularly in the middle of the country, count on, small entrepreneurs make their own trucking companies to actually fulfill the last mile of trucking or the long mile of trucking, right? So this is, a, in the middle of the country, it's a big, big, big deal. Self-driving cars, why do you need this? these people doing that? There's no reason whatsoever. Because the first place that you use a self-driving car, it's probably in a truck, right? Long haul, straight roads, you know pretty predictable high energy utilization or ability to use less. So we're going to wipe out a whole kind of sector of the economy. What are we going to do about that? Most entrepreneurs only think about the first part of that statement, which is, you know, I did my job. My job was to figure out a way to make this more efficient, to make it more safe. I hear this all the time. Wait a minute. The world wants this. The world needs this we're going to make it more efficient, we're going to pollute the world less, it's going to be so on and so forth. On the other side is the world saying... I agree. I like this, but I prefer. I need to work.
0: Let's go to something that you've experienced. Then I think uh, when you were at Xerox, the number of people working in billing went from thousands oh, to hundreds. So you've actually seen this, We've seen right? This. I mean, what about manufacturing? So uh, we what ran did you do, and where did you, you know, to to be a bit, you know, forefront? Where where did you put your money? Where your mouth was? Well, on I mean, that we question? did. We
1: did. The fundamental question is what is the role of a company? The the normal um, statement about what the role of a company is is to increase shareholder value. If that's the only role of a company, if that's the major role or the only role of a company, I don't want to run one, um, because we have communities and we have employees, we also have shareholders. We have to serve all three of these groups, which are called stakeholders, and we have to do it in a way that, on average over time, they all win. If we can, if we don't do that,
0: but can you have that? I'm going to push you a little bit on that. Can you have that out of this exactly the disruption that you've. Outlined. Uh, uh, Isn't that, I mean, uh, let me guess, and you can correct me, that maybe your answer will take us towards changing education systems or changing how the skills base over life. But that in itself still seems to lag behind the possible iterations that we are facing.
1: That's one of the reasons why I said very specifically on average over time. Because any massive disruption quickly is going to leave a whole bunch of people outside. right? And what a company has to be able to do is to smooth out these massive disruptions. So I could probably replace twice as many billing people today as I will do, because I also have to pay attention to the fact that in upstate New York, Rochester, New York, where we worked, it wasn't billing, it was manufacturing, if I fired all of the people that we didn't need immediately, I would literally leave the taxpayers and that county literally holding the bag for the success of this company. It's not efficient, it's not fair, it's not right. So you slow that down, you you balance it over time, you give employees other ways to actually engage new new ways of working. It's not perfect, but we have to actually slow down a bit. Not the drive, but the implementation of the solutions. You have to slow it down or we're gonna have a revolt in the streets. I'm convinced of this.
0: And how would that then balance with your responsibilities, be it in a CEO or a, a that's chairman I said role? That, yeah, that's why. I mean, they're, they're, therefore, you've got someone who'll say, that's great, Ursula's thinking like that. I've got a competitive advantage here, right? I can just come in. You've, you've faced absolutely. activist investors yourself yep. in the past. And
1: basically, absolutely, you have to deal with those. And you may lose. This is a hard thing for me, because I'm just starting to formulate more clearly the thinking in my mind about how do you do this America's not socialist. It's a capitalist economy. So we actually know that there will be these big disruptions and people left behind. But I think right now that it's happening so quickly and so broadly that we have to do something to prepare for the future of a large number of people who will not have anything useful to do at times in their life where they are used to being very useful.
0: Let's talk a bit about your background and how it prepared you for the role that you're in now. You, you grew up uh, here in New York City. You grew up uh, not in privileged circumstances. Some people will say that wasn't an easy start, but you have always, I think in your public pronouncements, turned it to advantage. I think you've said, I'm a black lady from the Lower East Side of New York. Not a lot intimidates me. Still the case? Very much so. More much or so. less than a few
1: years ago. I am intimidated even less now than I was years ago. Over the years, I've figured out, and this is going to sound boastful, but I figured out that I'm pretty good at basic tasks like integral calculus. I am pretty good at thermodynamics. I went to the same schools as all of these other guys, got the same degrees, very, very well accomplished. The thing that I have that's a little bit different is that I've had to defend myself for being where I was more than most people ever even had to think about. So I am very Good at figuring out where I'm sitting in that room in people's minds and using that set of information and data to my advantage.
0: What do you do when the room's against
1: you? I generally push into it. I've earned the right to sit at a table and to say to people who actually believe I shouldn't be there that basically I have no time for you. If you don't want me in this room, you get up and leave. There's no reason why I'm ever going to do that. Because what they're judging is not my intellect. Right. It's not my drive. It's definitely not my capability to do things because I've proven I can do that. It is their comfort. They're challenging their comfort with me being there. And that's not something. It's not my business. That's not my concern.
0: What do you think about the, the impact of where we are politically in America on everything you describe? And there's an association that's just quite often made, often by those who actually have politics that would lead this way anyway, that things are a lot worse for people of color since Donald Trump got elected. True or not true?
1: Absolutely true. No, Absolutely true. Large legal changes about who and who can vote, about what a human looks like. By the way, not only people of color, women. Women are going to figure this out. I thought that they would have figured it out in the last election for some unbelievable surprise. I, people made choices that said, I'm willing to have him pass on that just so I can, I guess, get more money in my tax return. I, I think I'm being a definite... Is that pain. a fair
0: description of how Donald Trump got elected? Sounds a bit partial.
1: It is definitely, but I mean, yeah, that's all I am is partial, right? I am mean. But his rhetoric, his actions since he's gotten elected are in some ways just mean. And it's mean and very pointed against certain types of people, women, underrepresented minorities, anybody who's not physically capable. It's just a, a, an unbelievable um, switch. I think you can get what you need to get done, done, particularly if you're the president, without creating a massive set of victims behind you, there's no reason for it. And that's the thing that concerns me, is that so many people went along with it and are still going along with it when the rhetoric is not about making us better by bringing people along, it's making us better by literally leaving people beh- behind, literally disregarding these people's value. I've never heard that as a foundation for America. That's now becoming the foundation for America.
0: You've seen a Democrat candidate that you like, Democratic candidate? I, I
1: actually don't. I make it a point to support only after they pick out the person that they want to pick out.
0: If I could just take you back to another part of what you're advocating for, which is STEM subjects, not only with women and girls, but uh, that's obviously an area where there's just been a shortfall and it does seem to be very hard to address, culturally notwithstanding the extraordinary successes you've shown at the top end of business that girls can have if they choose this path. What is it that we're getting wrong? Why are we not attracting girls? It starts
1: so early in life. The first breath you take outside of the womb We build people's views of themselves, parents clearly do it, how we speak, what we show them as success. If you think about every step of a girl's life when they're born, by and large, they have been funneled down this path that is away from technology in general. And if you think about boys, they have been funneled towards these build it, fix it, you know, learn about math. It starts so early that we have to kind of go back to that point, unfortunately. Because that's a really hard one to fix, right?
0: But I've got to ask you about your own experience. There you were, this little girl. uh, imagine not growing up in a world of fantastically sophisticated toys or computing. What made you think, I'm going to do engineering? First, I was good at math. And I had a mother
1: that was unbelievably practical. She had very little, very few assets to give to her children except for this optimism and practical nature. She didn't know about technology, but what she gave me was access to people who had access to more and more information. So I went to a better school than average in the neighborhood that I went to because my mother scraped together every cent she could to send us to this Catholic school. This was not a highfalutin school with any technology at all but it was a school that taught you how to, to learn, to study, dis- discipline, this optimism. So I actually got accidentally leaned towards engineering. What's the most uh, money you can earn after four years of college? That's how I got to become an engineer. I looked in this book called the Baron's book. They had the top earning jobs after four years of college and the top one when I graduated in 1980 was chemical engineering. I had no idea what the heck it was, I knew I was reasonably good at math. I needed money as much as possible because we were really poor after four years of college. So I studied that. Now, what I'm trying to do now and what a lot of people are trying to do now is not make that
0: an accident. So what's your, your the most enticing thing, I suppose, that you could offer? Because the answer could go very broad. But if you wanted to look at where girls are starting out in education, why they're not pulling through that system in greater numbers, what would it be?
1: More interaction between adults and children, explaining to them, and not only teachers, adults and children, um, explaining the possibilities of the world. So I I say, wherever I go, find a school in your locality, not the school you went to, not this highly privileged school, it could be any school, and walk in, knock on the door, walk in and say, I'm here to help you. What do you need help in? I can tell these kids what I do for a living every day. I can be an after-school, after-class advocate, something, because I think that there's some things states can do and all that stuff. But one of the things that humans are going to have to do, we as privileged, gifted, whatever humans, is to actually grab some of these kids and give them alternative views of the world. And I think that's the thing that most people can do very easily.
0: We have an annual publication called The World If, and it looks at fanciful but intriguing scenarios about what might play out on the world stage. And one of them looked at the question, what if half of CEOs were women? What with women being half, or even a bit more than half, of the human race? So what do you think the key things are that we would need to change to start moving towards that path? And not just the Zeno's paradox where we're always getting somewhere, but we're never getting Getting there. there. (laughs) You got
1: it. I was totally against any kind of quota. And I am shifting in my, my staunch, absolutely the wrong thing to do, to maybe, maybe, and let me tell you why. I think that we've been, I've been in, in business for almost 40 years, and we have been talking about this problem. We're half the population. Um, we're not anywhere near half. We're not even 10%. There are more CEOs named John than there are CEO women. You know, you heard all of that stuff. We have been pushing against this thing for, for a long time with the belief that if we just let them alone and give them the facts, that they, the system, will change. Don't you get it? If we just kind of lay it out and give them the so facts. So why hasn't it worked? Because the they who are giving the facts to don't believe it's urgent enough to change it. That's why I say maybe what you do is to start mandating things. Saying, At what
0: level? Board level of a big company like this?
1: Yeah, I think board level is starts.
0: I think, God, love star. I oh, think you think How high should it be?
1: Half, 40%. Give me a number that's reasonable. You do the study of available people, whatever the heck it is, and you start mandating companies to get there. You say, basically, we need that many women on the board. I'll give you time to get there. How, many, how much time do you think you need, company? 10 years? Five years? Seven years? I don't know. I'm going to start measuring you against it. If you knew how viscerally I was against this, even 10 years ago, people would, who hear this are going to say, what? How does she get there? How can she possibly believe? But we've tried everything else, right? We've given people facts. We've told them, you know, the the results of businesses are better. We like you better if you do it. I mean, half the buyers are women. We've given everything you can imagine. We're graduating them. We'll give them special training classes when they come on board if they're women, so on and so forth. All that and where. I think you've said men don't give a hoot. But giving a hoot is not enough. We have a system that has a playing field defined, the rules defined, the referees defined, the measures of success defined, every single bit of it by men. And I think we have to kind of disrupt it. So you, you started the question with what would happen if? What would happen if um, half the CEOs and half the board members were women? They probably know more women to bring on the comp- in the companies and at the leadership level. The more you have, the more you'll get. Because we hire in our image. And by the way, unless women are literally inferior to men, which, we, <laughs> which is that's not the case, we know that this is being enacted structurally because women are paid less than men. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why. Well, that to take time off to keep the human race going. All this stuff that is part of the world, we penalize them for and bake it into the
0: system. If I were to test your case, I might say well and good, but you're one step away, or perhaps you're even suggesting that some form of affirmative action might be be needed, at which point someone might say, yeah, well, I'm going to go so far with you, but I am worried that I may be under pressure to hire someone who's not as good for the job as a white male candidate. What would you say?
1: I would say BS to the theory. If you can pick from
0: half the world... More than half the population. But you haven't half the population. You've said yourself that the, the, women, we, the weakness in STEM is, particularly women and girls, constrains the pool from which you're fishing.
1: That's why I told you I'd give you time to get there, right? Because we're going to fix that. Look at college graduation rates and engineering, pure sciences. What I'm starting to worry about in this area is that we're leaving the boys behind. Because we're going to just swing the pendulum so far as the incoming classes, particularly to elite schools. Amazing. Columbia University, 50% of the population women. MIT, 50%. Of, so we're going to get there, right? So i would give you a little bit of time to actually make this transition because I know it can't happen overnight. I get called for a board. I, literally, I get called for an active board seat about every week. It's not because I'm this spread great person. Love, you know, yeah. Spread the love. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not this like, amazing thinker. I just happen to be one of a few, right, that can check this box. I'm pretty good at being a board member, but also one of the few that can check this box. If we increase the numbers by increasing the intake, it'll take us a little while. What I want is affirmative action. I want business leaders to to literally focus on this specific problem and, and take steps that will change it in
0: an affirmative way very quickly, because the progress that we're making today is insanely slow. You've recently been appointed to the board of a company that's suffered serious reputation issues at Uber, described by some as a toxic environment. What do you think of the new leadership there and how would you suggest going about changing it? I actually entered the
1: board at the time when, from what I could sense at at Uber, and that's one of the reasons why I, I, I entered, was that the environment was far from toxic. It was definitely on the way to being a standard and even in many ways a, above standard business environment. Uh, so I, was, I came in at the easier time of the transition, not before when the board members were dealing every day with a friggin' crisis that, of some action that we had done incorrectly. I came in at, right at that juxtaposition. The company had stabilized that and moved forward. I think that a company like Uber, though, has the fundamental issue of a large amount of the new starts today. The... Management team, board, um, business leaders come from a very specific and very narrow background. It's kind of like a club that accentuates everything about the club members, good stuff and bad stuff. And there is nobody in the club who doesn't fit there and says, you guys are doing what? So Uber suffered from, in my opinion, that kind of a thing. And what we have to do with, and the thing I love about it is how quickly it is, it has literally fundamentally changed. We're just not going to do that anymore. Now, we're going to probably swing too far in other ways, but I, I'm really pleased with, with the awareness of the need to be more ready for business in the right way versus ready for business in the wrong way. And Dara is doing a great job, and Ron, who's the chairman, is doing a great job. The board is doing a great job at it today.
0: Last question What does the Ursula Burns, as a businesswoman, know now that she didn't know when she was on her way up to whatever grand floor we're on here, looking over the the, the heart of the business district of New York, which you seem to have at your feet? Um, Well, what does she know?
1: I tell you what, I was with a colleague of mine who's on the board of the Ford Foundation with me. And she said, her name is Cecile Richards, phenomenal woman. She said something when this question was asked to this panel that we were on. And it encapsulated one of the things that I absolutely felt when I was growing up. She said, start before you're ready. So what women do generally is to prepare extremely well for tasks. The world needs us, particularly now, to start engaging, to start leading before we think we're ready. Even me, who moved through the company very quickly, there were things that they said, well, we'd like you to do this. I'm like, you like me to do it? I mean, don't I need like a whole bunch of other stuff behind? Generally, this is the this is a generalization that's probably not true. Men would say, I, pff, yeah, let's go. And I think that women have to start before they think they're ready or else we're going to continue to be left way, way behind.
0: Ursula Burns starting before you were ready, but getting somewhere in the end, huh? Yeah, that's the whole point, right? Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having
1: me. It's really fun.
0: And we'd love to hear what you think. Where do the responsibilities of a CEO begin and end? And how can equality trickle up from the interview room to the boardroom? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or tweet us at Economist Radio. And do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ann McElvoy, and in New York, this is The Economist.